Um, so anything you do here, whether you sneeze or you cough, is going to be caught and put on uh, iTunes. <coughs> but um, I'm Rosemary Barbare. I'm, uh, I'm direct the MA program in International Crime and Justice and also teach on the BA program. And we're very lucky to have a wonderful speaker today with us um, who is a former student of mine um, from 10 years ago when I taught in England. He has an MSc in Criminal Justice, which is a program I directed there. His name is Samuel Akarimo. He is uh, Chief of Safety and Security at the UN International Tribunal for, Tribunal for Rwanda. Uh, he started his career in the Ugandan police <coughs> um, and then moved on to be uh, an investigator and commander of investigations for the Office of the Prosecutor of the ICTR in Kigali. <coughs> um, there he set strategic policy and plans for investigation of perpetrators of the Rwanda genocide that many of you have studied in your classes. And he also supervised a witness management team. Um, after that, he was promoted and has been working in the area of security, both in Ethiopia and in Nigeria. And now he has gone back to be the chief of the security and safety section in Arusha at the ICTR. Um, he is currently finishing his uh, PhD in international law at the University of Leicester in the UK. And so today he is going to tell us about his uh, research as well as about aspects of his career. Um, he hasn't really prepared a formal lecture, um, so he does want to give a presentation to you, but he's also very keen on taking your questions and telling you a little bit more about his work and his career overall. So please welcome Samuel. Thank you very much indeed, and uh, good afternoon all. Um, I'd like to start by thanking Rosemary Barbara um, for creating this opportunity for me. I consider it is, uh, as, as a great opportunity for me to be able to speak to you. And uh, she praises me a lot and thanks for these compliments, but I believe that much more that uh, goes into what I do comes from people that I talk to. And I would like to thank you very much indeed for taking the opportunity of attending this afternoon's talk. Let me start by uh, making one preliminary comment that um, I work for the Rwanda Tribunal, but I'm speaking on, in my personal capacity at this forum. So I do not represent the position of the International Tribunal for Rwanda, or for that matter, the United Nations, as um, I, I give this talk. I'd also like to say that I'd like this to be as, as much interactive as possible. So I'd like to invite you to give your minds a very free exercise. And um, I'll try to run through what I have as notes and leave some time for us to be able to uh, have that interaction. Uh, I value that a great deal and I believe that it enriches what we all uh, are to do. Um, what I have for this afternoon, I've tried to put it into three parts, if I may. Much as it is on the research I'm doing on the concurrent jurisdiction of the Rwanda Tribunal, um, I have tried to place it in the context of, as I understand it, this audience, um, uh, criminal justice, academic practitioners, and so on. Might I might have missed the context a little bit for some of you, and I apologize <coughs> for those who, who may not be right in the context of the talk, but I hope we should be able to uh, 
out of it. That said, I would like to make a request to yourselves and to ask a quick question. Uh, do we have anyone in the audience who has not heard about the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda at all? Just by quick show of hands. Do we have anyone in the audience who has not heard about the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda? Yes, you right. Um, any others? No. Well, so I, I hope we can have you along because I'll be referring to this institution directly by its name. Uh, but certainly, should you need any further information or orientation on it, I'll certainly be pleased to have uh, that with you after this talk. Um, and I'm glad that the majority of the audience have already heard about it and probably have understood, have had, have, have, have good knowledge of the context in which it was created. I touch on it a little, but only a little, because I think we have very limited time this afternoon. In the first part of this talk, I'd like to give a little background on what happened in Rwanda, where this genocide happened, and where the International Criminal Tribunal, uh, set up by the Security Council, is supposed to be doing its work. And in that part, I conclude with a couple of questions that I think go to the audience of criminal justice practitioners. Particularly that I think probably there is work that should be done in relation to the Rwanda genocide, or for that matter, in relation to the whole area of international criminal law to ensure that there is a strong linkage, to ensure that there is uh, some symbiosis with uh, the sociology part humanities, the sociology part of the delivery of justice altogether. Um, the Rwanda genocide was a huge event. Um, it's been described in different ways. It's been described as having shocked the conscience of mankind, and I cannot pretend to be able to condense it in the short time that we have this afternoon. But I hope what I'm going to touch on will give us um, an opportunity of that uh, will, will, will be useful this afternoon. I'll give you a very brief, really a brief uh, expose on the research that I'm doing, um, um, which is on the suitability of the concurrent jurisdiction of the Rwanda Tribunal. And then we'll have the floor open for discussion. And as I said, uh, I please invite you to give your mind the free exercise and ask as much questions as you can. The broad subject of jurisdiction, jurisdiction as, as, as a term, especially in legal terms, um, um, refers to the authority on which a judicial body exercises that judicial function. It is an important procedural requirement and there is a universal practice for judicial bodies, regardless what they are. Could be a judge, magistrate, chamber, trial chamber, whatever judicial chamber it is, to want to assure themselves right from the start of the proceedings that they have the authority um, to preside over the matter that is under investigation. So when you look at most uh, judicial records uh, of proceedings, you'll find that right at the beginning, the judicial body checks to be sure 
and we would like to confirm that that body has got jurisdiction, has got the authority to preside over the matter that is under litigation. That is an important point because, as I said, this is the broader subject. Concurrent jurisdiction has got its dynamic, as we will see uh, in a short moment. Now, I'm looking at concurrent jurisdiction of the Rwanda Tribunal, by which, by a resolution of the Security Council, uh, jurisdiction was created to be exercised. If you may, authority was conferred upon the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and national jurisdictions to preside over cases, to preside over matters that came out of uh, the Rwanda genocide. Now, you'll hear a short while later how I think there are issues coming out of this concurrent jurisdiction. You'll, you'll, you'll hear how I think that it's an area that needs some attention in terms of research, probably, in terms of development. The background is this, and I'll try to run through this quite quickly, especially for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with what happened in Rwanda in the period before and during the genocide that occurred in 1994. In a matter of 100 days, uh, in the period April, July 1994, up to one million people were killed in Rwanda in circumstances that have been confirmed as genocide. Uh, confirmed to the political scene through activities of different multilateral bodies. Here I'm particularly looking at uh, the role of the security, UN Security Council that in May of that year, after quite a long while of trying to avoid to refer to it as genocide, in May of 1994, agreed that there were acts of a genocidal nature taking place in Rwanda. That was right at the height of the killings that were happening in that country. And um, in, in, in judicial context, uh, judgments of the Rwanda tribunal, the very first two, had a definite judicial finding that genocide occurred are we familiar with what genocide is? Um, it's, it's obviously founded on the Convention on the Prevention and uh, of, of Prevention of Genocide, and that is a reference that you can very easily make. What happened in Rwanda is that the ethnic hatred, um, and this is found in various uh, researched materials, the ethnic hatred that led to the extent of killings one million people within a period of 100 days is traced to periods much, much before the actual uh, period when the genocide occurred. And that is quite historical in a sense, but also lays the foundation how it will happen. As I will conclude this part of the talk, um, I'll, I'll be emphasizing that given that background, I think um, there is need address the sociological aspects of uh, where the Rwanda genocide happened, how it happened, and how that can be used to address uh, that particular problem the way it happened. In the period, Rwanda was a colony way back, um, as many other African countries were. But in the period before colonization, um, the three main, we call them ethnic groups now, but let me just call them groups for the purpose of that period. 
the three main groups that existed in that country lived harmoniously. Um, they lived in harmony and society in that country was ordered in a particular fashion. Uh, it was ordered based on economic or social status of individuals. And that is how what was seen as three different groups in the country uh, were organized. It was possible for individuals to move from one group and the groups are Tutsi, that is the group that was particularly victimized in 1994, Hutu, who in terms of numbers uh, um, are the majority in that country, were the majority at that time as well, and Toa, those are the three groups. Um, it was possible for individuals to move from one group to another depending on how much wealth in terms of cattle, how much uh, recognition socially the individual had, and the main group that was seen to be elitist, that was seen to be property, that was seen to be determined according to wealth, was the Tutsi. At the time colonization came to Rwanda, um, and as a means of taking hold of the colony, bringing it under their control, the colonizers then allied with the Tutsi because of the influence they had, because of the status they they, they, they had in the country, uh, they allied with them, gave them opportunities, allowed them access to authority, and that way they stood out much more. And that was certainly in favor of the colonizers of that country. However, in the beginning of the 20th century, when the anti-colonization wave swept Africa, and with the strong indication that um, the Tutsi, who were the allies of the colonizers, had had an awareness, had had a realization that there is a huge potential for them to maintain in the leadership of the country. This is very important for us to note. The colonizers then, and these were Belgian colonizers at that time, switched allegiance from the Tutsi switched allegiance from those they saw as providing them the opportunity to maintain control of the country to the Hutu, who, as I said earlier, were more in numbers. Um, and, and that, according to several researchers, according to several documents, was probably one of the milestones that set the hatred that saw the killings that happened in 1994 with the ferocity that it did. Once the colonizers switched allegiance to the Hutu, um, they gave them the kind of access, they gave them the kind of priority that they gave to the Hutu, to the Tutsi, and the two communities, the Tutsi, who previously were the allies of the colonizers, against the Hutu and vice versa, obviously the Hutus now having the opportunity of access to the colonizers, access to authority, access to um, leadership in the country, had the opportunity and the two groups in Rwanda began looking at one another in that light. <coughs> that has been noted as a milestone, as, as one instance in that country that um, sowed the seed that 
probably perpetuated the genocide to the extent that, uh, that it had. So before colonization, the groups in the country were ordered not on an ethnic basis, but more on a social and economic basis. But through the process of colonization, through the, if you may, as has been described sometimes, the divide and rule process, um, this ethnic relationship, the ethnic tendency, the, 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 um, the attitude that emerged between the two main groups started at that time. And, and, and it's been described as um, uh, one of the milestones in the development of the age situation between the two groups. It's been known um, all along and at that time that in terms of demographics, the Hutu uh, were approximately 84% of the population in, in Rwanda. The Tutsi, 15% and the poor 1%. So it's mainly the first two groups that saw themselves in the problems that eventually erupted um, and, and led to the genocide that happened in that country. At the time that the colonizers switched their allegiance, and as part of the political evolution, in political social evolution in that country at that time, um, um, all nationals of the country were obliged to have identity cards which stated their ethnic ethnicity so that a particular national's identity card would have to show he or she is a Hutu, a Tutsi, or Twa. When the genocide eventually happened in 1994, that reality that the identity card individuals had showed their ethnic orientation was a major factor in propelling the genocide because the perpetrators used the identity cards, used that record of identity to identify uh, their victims and, and that in a way um, gave momentum to uh, the genocide as it happened. As I've said, when the anti-colonization wave swept the continent, then that promoted the inter-ethnic relations between the Hutu and the Tutsi much more, to the extent that just before independence in Rwanda, uh, the country witnessed violence. Violence that saw quite an extent of killings happening, but also saw um, a big proportion of, especially the Tutsi, leaving the country and becoming refugees in neighboring and other countries. And that eventually was responsible for what uh, started the whole process um, of the war and eventually the genocide. Um, I should point out that <coughs> over this period, the country appeared to have a degree of stability. But the exiles that had left the country just before independence. Um, um, of course, they grew in numbers out there, but were also mobilizing themselves. Once the country had independence, there were some post-independence political problems, some degree of instability. The very first president uh, was ousted by the then chief of staff. 
Juvenile Javierimana in 1973. That is important because Juvenile Javierimana was the president at the time the genocide occurred in 1994. But in 1973, took over the reins of power in the country and ran the country. I would not go into the details of the political system that he managed, uh, but I would want to emphasize that there were Rwandans outside the country in Britain who mobilized themselves and in 1990 uh, mounted an attack on the country um, uh, from a neighboring country, Uganda. That saw a war that was fought over a period until 1994 um, when it ended with the genocide. It's important to mention that during this period, the political um, system in Rwanda was under uh, different forms of pressure to bring about different reforms of reforms, institute a degree of democratization. The country was running on uh, the basis of a one-party system. There was pressure to ensure a more inclusive system of government. And this was a time, as I said, when the war was raging as had been mounted by uh, Rwandans who were outside the country, most of whom were the Tutsi. When we go back to the origins of the political social situation in the country, these are people who initially um, were at the helm of leadership of the society in the country. Um, the colonizers allied with them when they came in. The colonizers switched allegiance when they saw the anti-colonization wave sweeping uh, the continent. And eventually, having gone into exile, uh, they found themselves in a situation where they mounted an attack on the country. On the 6th of April in 1994, uh, when the then president, Juvenal Javier Mada, was returning to the capital, Kigali, uh, his plane was shot down just on the approach to um, the capital, in, uh, the, the, the airport of the capital. Um, and soon as the plane was shot down, uh, killing started within a matter of an hour or so. Uh, when you look at the details of how the genocide happened, it's clear that um, there had been extensive preparation. It's clear, and this has been established as evidence uh, before the tribunal, that there had been a lot of steps taken to prepare for what erupted once the president's plane was shot down and he and the president of Burundi got killed in that in that attack. Um, and as I said, within a period of 100 days from April to July of 1994, up to one million people got killed. I'll not be able to go into the details of how all this happened, but um, something that you find in a lot of reference materials. It's something that you can read about <coughs> and you can understand um, the uh, extensive extent uh, to which the killings uh, were carried, the very um, unbelievable ways in which the killings were carried out. But let me just mention before I pose a few questions on this that um, some of the killings happened in ways that uh, uh, 
shocking. It involved different people from different walks of life in that country. It involved the use of different ways of attack. And it saw some uh, forms of killing that were beyond comprehension. A neighbor turning on a neighbor and becoming the attacker, the aggressor of a neighbor, and sometimes even within, within families. And it is in that context, as I mentioned earlier, that I think that there are questions that it's important to address to the sociology community. It's important to address to the sociology practitioners of academicians that a, long, a lot of effort has gone into addressing the genocide, particularly in terms of addressing it in criminal justice context. But I think that it's important that it is also addressed in a sociological context so that we attempt to understand whether the notions that we have known over time of, if you may, crime and society are applicable in this context whether there should be a different context in which such a major event as a genocide should be addressed and which probably goes beyond the notions that we have always known of crime and society. In any case, because um, genocide is about efforts to annihilate uh, a whole group of people, which I think probably can be distinguished from instances of crime as we have known them all along, uh, which deal with antisocial behavior. So I think that there is an area of work that should be done in relation to the Rwanda genocide. Work that should help to understand, that should help mankind to go to the depths and the roots of the genocide in the way it happened and also the criminal justice processes that followed it. Um, my area of research, and here I will talk about how the response uh, to the genocide uh, was, 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 was promoted. After the killing of the one million or so people, during that period, as I said, um, the UN Security Council, which is one of the bodies that was dealing with this situation, uh, recognized that genocidal acts were taking place in that country. Just slightly over a year earlier, the UN Security Council had set up an ad hoc tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. As a body of the UN, the UN Security Council, or for that matter, the UN altogether, had no previous experience in dealing with, in running criminal justice institutions and operations. So the two ad hoc tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and the one that the UN Security Council established on 8 November 1994 for the Rwanda Tribunal were the very first um, of institutions that the United Nations operated for purposes of criminal justice processes. Criminal justice processes that conducted investigations for purposes of finding evidence to determine the guilt or innocence of individuals, criminal justice processes 
that would see witnesses, that would see evidence presented before judges, criminal justice processes that would determine the guilt or innocence of uh, individuals, criminal justice processes that would implement the decisions of the trial chambers, that would implement the decisions of the, of the judges, whether of guilt or innocence. Um, um, so this was a groundbreaking area for the United Nations, an area totally new for the United Nations, but there it was, a momentous event happening in a country. A big proportion of the population of that country um, killed. The whole social setup of the country badly affected, and the United Nations as the multilateral body that we know it, establishing a criminal justice process for dealing with that momentous event that happened in that country. My research is looking at a particular provision of the UN Security Council resolution, resolution 955 of 94, that established, as I said, the concurrent jurisdiction for dealing with the Rwanda genocide. What this means is that um, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, being an international criminal jurisdiction, had, I started by describing what jurisdiction is, the power, the authority to preside over a matter under litigation, had the authority to deal with cases coming out of the Rwanda genocide alongside some other um, jurisdiction, alongside some other body which had also been given uh, that authority. Article 8 of the ICTR statute is very specific to refer to ICTR and national courts of, uh, of, of, of state. Uh, but I take that provision into a wider interpretation to particularly recognize that after the genocide that happened in 94, um, four different channels of justice got created or came onto the scene to deal with the genocide. The International Criminal Justice, uh, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, as established by the Security Council, the ordinary courts in Rwanda, because anyway, that is where the genocide happened. Within their legal system, within their legal framework, they had a responsibility to deal with cases um, related to the genocide. Under a notion known as universal jurisdiction, this is um, something that you will find in extensive literature as well, national courts of other countries equally have the jurisdiction, equally have the authority to prosecute cases coming out of the Rwanda genocide. And then finally, something very unique to Rwanda, what is referred to as the Gachacha courts. Uh, informal forms, the traditional tribunals that the Rwandese people had way back before the modern systems of approaches to justice were introduced, uh, were revived for dealing with the genocide as well. Uh, again, this also has extensive literature. So 
four different channels of uh, delivery of justice came onto the scene, were available on the scene for dealing with the Rwanda genocide. There is a specific provision in Article 8 of the ICPR statute that makes provision for concurrent jurisdiction, referring to the jurisdiction for the international tribunal and jurisdiction for national courts. Um, uh, but as I said, that has a wider context that addresses the other two jurisdictions. I note that, um, and this is part of the research that uh, I'm, I'm dealing with, I note that there are certain gaps, if I may, flaws in the provisions and the process of implementation of concurrent jurisdiction for the Rwanda Tribunal. The very first that I note, and this comes out of um, a practical experience the tribunal had that much as Article 8 is clear to provide concurrent jurisdiction for the Rwanda Tribunal and national courts, there is no other provision, at that time at least, there was no provision for, for the implementation of that concurrent jurisdiction. How would the international tribunal relate with national jurisdictions in implementation of uh, that concurrent jurisdiction? How would the two jurisdictions deal with situations where a case comes before one for which the other one is interested? It's not until seven years, eight months later that um, within the rules of procedure and evidence of the tribunal, a provision was introduced for dealing with that. Rule 11B was introduced to outline ways by which the two jurisdictions, the ICPR and national jurisdictions, would be able to move cases from one to, to another. Article 8 is clear to emphasize that um, the ICPR has primacy. It has, if you may, it overrides uh, national jurisdictions but there was no provision whatsoever uh, defining how cases that may be before the tribunal that it is considered appropriate should be before the national uh, jurisdictions would be dealt with. In 1999, uh, the prosecutor of the tribunal indicted one individual, Bernard Ntuyahaga, filed the, the indictment with the judges, prosecutor deemed it appropriate to withdraw those charges in the expectation that the case of Bernard Ntuyahaga would be taken up by a national jurisdiction, in particular Belgium. There were two national jurisdictions interested in the case. Rwanda was equally interested, Belgium definitely, and the prosecutor of the tribunal um, had allowed Belgium allowed Belgium and Amucas Curie status. However, once the charges were withdrawn and once the judges looked at the law, um, they did not approve the request of the prosecutor that the judges should order that Bernard Ntuyahaga should be handed 
the Belgian authorities. So Bernard Dupierre as an individual who had charges against him, found himself in what appears to be a gap. After the withdrawal of the charges, he was a free man, but there were two national jurisdictions interested to have him and, and to have him processed according to their criminal justice process. Uh, and so there was a very dramatic um, uh, unfolding of events that Bernard Piahaga was released. He found himself handed over to the hands of the Tanzanian authorities because he was in that territory and somehow he had his own arrangements made and he turned up in the capital of Belgium where he was eventually processed uh, by that country. But that was a typical instance that illustrated um, a gap that existed in the provisions of the law for implementation of the concurrent jurisdiction of, uh, of, uh, of the Rwanda Tribunal. Um, I should, I should, um, how much time do we have? About half hour. Half hour, all right. Um, I'd like to give as much time as possible for, for you to be able to ask questions and, 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 and for us to have a discussion. I should point out, and this is probably one of the startups that was quite challenging for the Rwanda Tribunal. I should point out that if we go back a little bit time in 1994, uh, once the killings happened, once the UN Security Council um, acknowledged that genocidal acts were happening in that country, and it was agreed that a tribunal should be created. I should point out that Rwanda as a nation made the request, as it turned out, Rwanda was actually one of the members of the Security Council at that time, one of the non-permanent members of the Security Council. Rwanda made the request for the establishment of the Rwanda Tribunal. However, once there was a draft Security Council resolution establishing the tribunal, as it turned out, uh, Rwanda voted against that resolution for reasons, and I'll go through them with you in a short while, uh, which, as I said, demonstrate um, the challenging startups that the Rwanda Tribunal faced. There was a draft resolution before the Security Council in November uh, 94, and Rwanda, as the non-permanent member of the Security Council, voted against it. All the same, eventually the resolution was passed. But these are the reasons that Rwanda gave for voting against uh, that resolution. First, Rwanda stated that it could not accept the limitation of the tribunal's temporal jurisdiction. When you look at Security Council Resolution 955 of 94, it sets a temporal jurisdiction for the tribunal running from 1 January to 31 December 1994. In other words, the tribunal has authority to deal with acts that were committed within that period only. That has quite an extensive origin, it has an origin in different uh, uh, sources uh, that you may want to look into. But that was one of the concerns that uh, Rwanda expressed, and it argued that uh, the acts committed in 94 did not occur spontaneously, that 
they had been preceded by a flooding period and that smaller scale massacres. I, I, I quickly went through the background of that country, but there's much more that one could get to know of what happened in that country. But Rwanda argued that small scale massacres that could be interpreted in the context of genocide uh, happened before 1994. So the draft resolution that set a temporal jurisdiction running through the calendar year of 1994, according to Rwanda, did not serve the interests of uh, that country, did not serve the interest of addressing what happened in the country. And it, he also noted that it, that, that would limit, it, it would limit um, the, the reach of the law to individuals who had planned, who had instigated, who had been the brains, if you may, behind uh, the genocide that happened in that country. The second reason that Rwanda gave uh, for voting against the resolution uh, was an emphasis that Rwanda thought there was an, an inadequate structure created within the draft uh, resolution. It, Rwanda criticized the structure that was proposed in the resolution that the Rwanda tribunal would share the prosecutor, would have a common prosecutor with the ex-Yugoslav tribunal, that it would share an appeals chamber with the ex-Yugoslav tribunal. These two components of the tribunal were passed and it operated that way, even though uh, later in 2006, 2007, um, a separate prosecutor was appointed for the Rwanda tribunal. But from the time of the Security Council resolution until that time, um, the two ad hoc tribunals, the one for the former Yugoslavia and the one uh, for Rwanda, uh, had one prosecutor, and Ru uh, Rwanda's concerns were that a single prosecutor for the two tribunals may not allow adequate attention to be addressed to the genocide that had happened to that country. Um, the third reason Rwanda gave, uh, it expressed regret that uh, nothing in the tribunal statute uh, expressed priorities with regards to the crime of genocide and as they underlined its inception from right to inception, which, which is quite related to the first uh, reason that it gave, that the structure that the draft resolution provided did not go right to the period and the aspects that started with genocide prior to 1994. The fourth reason Rwanda gave was that uh, Rwanda was concerned by the fact that the countries, and Rwanda was very, very critical about this, the countries which had supported the genocidal regime in the country would, be, would participate in the selection of judges of the tribunal. Um, the concern here for Rwanda was that probably that would not serve the interests of justice. Um, and here, Rwanda was really concerned about um, uh, its former colonies, uh, colonial masters. The fifth reason 
uh, was that Rwanda did not accept that persons sentenced by the tribunal should be imprisoned or should serve their sentences in third countries. That was a specific provision in the, in the draft resolution, in the draft statute, and Rwanda was concerned about that. And Rwanda was also concerned and needed to have some a say in the modalities for implementation of sentences uh, that may be handed down. The sixth reason was that Rwanda was opposed to the fact that the draft resolution, draft statute, did not include the capital punishment um, in it. Um, but again, um, this, 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 this had its own dimension, especially for the UN Security Council, given that in other contexts, the United Nations as a body uh, is opposed, has instruments that oppose the capital punishment, but it's one of the reasons that Rwanda gave uh, for voting against the, the, the draft resolution. The last reason that Rwanda gave was that Rwanda insisted that the tribunal should be based in the country, should be based where the crimes happened, should be based where the genocide happened. This is because the proposal at that time was it should be based in Indeed, that is how it eventually happened, that it's now based, it was uh, established in a neighboring country, Tanzania. Um, but Rwanda had particular criticism for that as well. Um, it's important to give this as a background because, as I said, um, probably it set a difficult beginning for the Rwanda Tribunal. Rwanda as a country requested for it. Rwanda is the country that took the brunt of the genocide and to see Rwanda voting against uh, the resolution that was establishing a, tribu a tribunal to deal with the genocide um, obviously needed a little bit of work to be sure that it doesn't start on a false note. Let me just make mention of one reference um, I will conclude my comments soon, reference to a provision of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Article 6 of uh, that convention um, probably lays the foundation for concurrent jurisdiction. It lays the foundation in the sense that um, it states that an individual against whom there are charges for genocide and related crimes may be tried either in the country where the crimes happen or in some other country, as will have been agreed by the contracting parties that will have accepted its jurisdiction. Uh, I consider this provision particularly important when talking about concurrent jurisdiction because the way the Security Council uh, wanted, the way it established concurrent jurisdiction for the Rwanda Tribunal seems not to be in accord with the spirit and letter of Article 6 of the Genocide Convention. I'm not, and I'll be wrong to say that they should be in accord because the Rwanda genocide, the response to that genocide had its own dynamics. But 
the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide is one of the key instruments in this area. That is also related um, uh, to the background as far as creation of international criminal jurisdiction is concerned. The background that the International Law Commission, a body of the UN General Assembly, um, had done quite extensive work as requested by the UN General Assembly. Right from the period after World War II, had done extensive work on the creation of an international criminal jurisdiction. But when you look at how the kind of framework <coughs> that the Rwanda Tribunal um, uh, has in relation to that background in relation to what the International Law Commission, what the Convention on uh, the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Uh, you, see, you see certain differences in the two frameworks, and I think those are areas that uh, need some attention, that need to be addressed, partly because, um, and this is my final comment on the subject of concurrent jurisdiction on the subject of international criminal jurisdiction, partly because this particular area of international criminal law, this particular area of the framework for bringing about accountability for mass atrocities has had a very rapid evolution. It has a long history, a history that was dormant for a long time. It's something that was thought about after World War One. It is something that um, had some work starting after World War II, but over the period did not really come to fruition until the conflict in, uh, in the Balkans and then the Rwanda situation. When we had the two ad hoc tribunals established with concurrent jurisdiction that gave priority, primacy, according to Article 8 of the Rwanda Tribunal, to the international tribunals in relation to national jurisdiction. But the rapid evolution in this area has seen subsequently an international criminal court established with the exact reverse of the order of that priority that the international criminal court in the order of priority of concurrency of jurisdiction gives priority to national jurisdiction with the International Criminal Court um, coming um, into the picture only if a particular national jurisdiction is either unable or unwilling to prosecute, investigate and prosecute individuals alleged, alleged uh, to have committed mass atrocities. So that, alongside the specifics that I've referred to the Rwanda Tribunal, um, if I may, is the motivation for me to do the research that I'm doing. And I just hope that it adds to the body of knowledge in this particular area. I also hope for yourselves that you found it um, uh, something that um, is interesting uh, to listen to. And on that note, I'll leave the floor open for any questions, comments, contributions, and uh, thank you very much.
Yes, sure. referred to the rapid evolution of international criminal uh, jurisdiction deliberately. I think that that rapid evolution probably has what I would call some hanging wings that it, it, should, it should go along with that, that addresses um, issues of justice in its full extent, including aspects that go beyond the legal juridical uh, matter. It would appear to me that attention has been concentrated on the legal juridical matters. And as I said earlier, the questions that I presented, that I think that there is much more that needs to go into it, including in the sociology context. I must say, probably it's happened, but I seem not to be uh, fully in the picture that an event genocide should really have the momentum in all respects, including um, the sociological aspects of it. And, and I believe that that has uh, dimensions on the issues of justice. Um, there is certainly quite some work that has gone into, and this is what Rwanda has put in a lot of effort in, um, to address issues, the social issues, the, 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 the trying to reconstruct the social fabric in that country. And I think that in itself is an important factor as well. That we cannot call it justice simply by getting an individual in the dock and saying, you're guilty or you're innocent, and, and, then, and then proceeding with that without addressing what I describe as the hanging uh, wings of the whole question. I, I hope that, that it, it yeah, does. Yeah. But can I just ask a follow-up? Right, right. Uh, in your thinking, because you've done a lot of thinking about um, in some very pragmatic ways, um, what does justice look like in a Rwandan context? How, help us picture what justice would look like for the victims of genocide in Rwanda. Have you thought? I, 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 I think it has different dimensions. Okay. One of them, of course, is well, who is it that did this? And, and, and you can, <coughs> to a, a major extent, the people know who did it anyway. And, and they would like to see the wheels of the justice process uh, deliver justice to them for that. 
they, they know who did it. And they say, it's neighbors who turned on neighbors. It's people they know that, um, that, that, that committed the killings. This is, and, and, but that is not enough for them. And I think they continue asking the question. The country continues asking the question. The people ask the question, why did it happen? And, and that is the concern. And I think that um, deserves effort that goes beyond the legal and juridical aspects of it to address the root causes. And that's why I tried to give a bit of extenso in the background, because probably that is where, partly where effort should go. So that maybe it's not for the benefit of Rwanda herself, but for the benefit of other parts of the world, so that whatever pitfalls, whatever problems can happen, can be avoided. And may I just add something to right. that? I think yeah. there are two dimensions. You have the punitive dimension, and right. you also have uh, forgiveness, and that's where your transitional justice comes in. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just yes. A quick question. I was reading like a week ago that um, Rwanda is seeking the extradition of the uh, president's wife. Right. Apparently, they think she has some kind of like uh, right to the uh, genocide. Right. And France is rejecting that, you know, offer to. reasons Rwanda gave for um, 
voting against the draft resolution, especially the reason that um, one of the nations that was involved in supporting the regime at that time, the genocidal regime and so forth, um, Rwanda really meant much. Being a permanent member of the Security Council, Rwanda was concerned that, uh, that uh, France would be part of it. And, and when you look at the materials, when you look at how it really evolved, uh, France had uh, a role in Rwanda quite understood. The merits and demerits of the case for France, for Rwanda, is probably something I would not go into. Uh, but the two countries have come a long way in addressing their relationship. You probably will also recall that actually um, an investigating judge issued warrants. That, that was part of the strain of relations. That's so one of the senior Rwandan officials arrested in France. But an apology, um, I'm not sure it would be an apology, but I would expect certainly that France as a member state of the UN should demonstrate all the commitment dealing with the genocide and uh, uh, events that affected mankind altogether. And if we can keep out of the politics, yes. Um, first, the first speaker, uh, the first or last person, will pose an important question about justice. And it begs the question, uh, who should determine justice? Should it be uh, the UN? Should it be the victim? Should, it, should the justice go through the legal arms of Rwanda? And um, this, I know, would be a continuous topic henceforth uh, in the international forum. But also, um, I could not overlook some of the reasons um, why uh, Rwanda objected to the tribunal, which right. I think some of it are very important reasons. And I will ask you that, I don't know today, but at that time, if uh, capital punishment was one of, was one um, taken along by the Rwanda's um, legal, right. legal framework, was capital punishment a part of you mean the national yes. system? Okay. Yes. yes, in fact. Yeah, go ahead. And if so, which you say yes, this is where we continuously find international conflicts because um, UN does not support capital punishment. Nevertheless, we find the victims or representative, representative of the victims would require such punishment. And con we see the dialogue and conflict here continue. So we're sitting as uh, UN. Uh, I know, you, as you earlier indicated, you're speaking from a personal perspective. Yeah, yeah. But your day-to-day -day relationships, do you see where, in the near future, we may come to a more common understanding in how we, we distribute justice, so to speak, in taking everybody's um, uh, idea on the table? Um, I think it's a discussion that will continue for some time. It's it's been it's been uh, on for quite a while. Um, I gave the four the four channels of justice that I came on the scene of the Rwanda genocide um, as as an, as an illustration. How would you temper? How would you moderate the delivery of justice? Who would determine the standards for those four channels of justice? the way they deliver justice. Certainly, it's, um, it's uh, a debate that will continue. And I believe that 
it, it challenges uh, the whole framework for delivery of justice quite a bit. Uh, but I must also note that probably coming from the long discussion that has been on, um, some, 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 some achievement has been made. Uh, because when you look at um, the Rwanda Tribunal, victims have their place, small as it is, within the whole framework of, uh, of, uh, of the law for the tribunal. But there is even much more when you look at the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court. There is much more space created for victims, actually recognizing them and giving them a voice in the whole process of delivery of justice. So I think it's a discussion that will continue. It's come a long way, uh, but also I think there has been some some progress made on it. It's certainly not an easy, it's, it's, it's a question that for which we cannot get a ready answer because um, you'll be dealing with several stakeholders. I think that's why we were looking to the, the, the conflict in terms of um, the UN uh, resolution because um, since that uh, Rwanda was one of the persons who put forward right. to the UN to the body for right. the constitution, right. I see where Rwanda failed in no part seeking prosecution, failed um, in making a prosecution. So why, now what are the reasons put forward by the UN not to have a tribunal in Rwanda? And of course, um, also as a IPJ student, I could not also look the subtle, I mean the, the hidden reasons behind um, not adhering to uh, Rwanda to press for looking at the elements and events that led to the actual 1994 incident. And it begs questions, Is it does this <coughs> include political affiliation? Um, was so, somebody or the body sees or foresee the inclusions of other countries or important so-called entities that evidence when brought before the court would have forced that individual or individuals to come forward. Yeah, so I just need to probably clarify or add a little bit that actually eventually the tribunal was established anyway. Mm -hmm. And also that Rwanda, despite the objection, despite having voted against that resolution, Rwanda made it clear that it would support the tribunal. Um, it's been a bit patchy, it's been a bit difficult, but um, Rwanda did express that clearly, that it will support the tribunal, and it's done so, it's done so. Uh, but we probably should put the question you're asking in the broader context of the wider framework for dealing with issues of human rights and justice. That some of the objections that Rwanda expressed may have had a leaning on other frameworks that already existed. As I said, um, as a UN, uh, as a member state of the UN, there are protocols, there are instruments regarding the death penalty, the capital punishment. And insofar as this tribunal was established as a UN body, it would probably not have been very practical to have the capital punishment. At the same time, you have the UN as a body promoting uh, a position regarding capital punishment. Uh, so I think it should be put in that wider context as well. But suddenly, as I said, the 
because you know Golestavus, uh, uh, Rwanda expressed its support for it. The point you make about the temporal jurisdiction, certainly yes, that's actually one of the areas that I've been looking at in my research, that probably it limited the delivery of justice yes. for the Rwanda tribunal, uh, that the temporal jurisdiction, but the Security Council certainly had reasons for limiting it to that period. Just to add to that, uh, although nations are sovereign, international uh, conventions are also part of international law, and members of the co of, uh, convention are pretty much obligated to adhere to the yeah. terms of those mm -hmm. conventions. Yeah. 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 Looking at Africa as a whole, and we, there is a, like, there is still problems within the ethnic groups in different countries, for instance, like in West Africa and stuff like that. Were you? Yeah. And looking at the event that took place in Rwanda, or given the fact some of the things are different, like uh, putting their ethnic group in uh, their passport or in, that, in right. their identification right. card, would you still uh, expect the same event to kind of happen in other countries? Like because like when it comes like to political uh, uh, time of, of politics, and it it turns to more of like an ethnic, you know, to an ethnic cleansing. Like okay, who's who's this, per who's Malenke, who's Fulani, who's this person, or who's that person? And you tend to vote more for, you know, it's like the lesson is not learned. We, and even looking at the, the Liberian war, it, tur it starts by a civil war and then it turns to an ethnic cleansing. Do you think there is any solutions or there is any lessons that Africa as a whole can learn from Rwanda? Um, the International Criminal Court, which is kind of the successor institution but remember, I talked about the rapid evolution of international criminal jurisdiction. The International Criminal Court is involved in addressing issues of mass uh, atrocity and abuse of uh, human rights in a different parts of Africa and elsewhere. Um, but you're right that in asking the question, and this is the point I make that we should not look at the Rwanda genocide, we should not look at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda as an event in itself, but as a process. A process for addressing situations of excesses, situations of, 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 um, of mass atrocity and so on, which should probably encompass several other areas that should address the root causes of the kind of problems that uh, have potential in, uh, in, in countries continents like Africa. So I argue that the Rwanda genocide, the Rwanda tribunal, the work it has done, the evolution of international criminal jurisdiction should be put in the proper context of the realities of those places, those parts of the world, those countries that have the potential for that problem to happen and, and, and used as such preferably to address the root causes before we have an eruption of a problem like Rwanda. So I, I, I see that there is need for more, to develop it much more. Um, the ICC, for example, is, is putting in a lot of effort to assert itself. It's putting in a lot of effort to establish itself as, as the mechanism for dealing with, for bringing people to account for, for, for mass atrocities for gross violation of human rights. 
but it's facing real challenges. It's facing real challenges in the work that it's doing. I think probably those challenges exist because the other aspects of the whole process are not moving along at the same time. Sometimes can you also look at it uh, as like instead of being an international problem, probably like there should be also like an organization, African organization to try to address the issue and try to educate its own people. Like, you know, do you think it would be much of a different, like taking it from an African context instead of taking it to an, as an international context? I, I mean, absolutely. But it, it doesn't just happen like you put it off the shelf. And that's why for me, I am critical about the rapid evolution. Uh, evolution from the international tribunal having primacy and national jurisdictions um, subject to that primacy, and then it suddenly swings to uh, the other, the exact opposite, where you have national systems having priority over the ICC as an, an international jurisdiction. I think there's something missing in between there, because it has to evolve. It, it, it will not, it will not it will not happen like you're taking something from the shelf. There's a little bit that happened, particularly through the hybrid courts that uh, were established for places like Sierra Leone, Cambodia, East Timor, and so on. And those probably would be the manifestations of what you're referring to as locally founded uh, systems or bodies for dealing with these kind of problems. But it will take an evolution. I think precisely because this is an area which is quite recent. It's quite new. Um, justice has had a long history, but not for dealing with the extent of problems that we have now, mass atrocity and, and, and gross violation of human rights. But you also have the, the Achacha courts that you have towards uh, the local. Yes, well. yes, I did talk about them as one of the four channels that came but so they were sensitive to the local conditions. Yes, yes, but, but went through quite um, 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 a diverse experience as well. They were heavily criticized for various reasons, but at the same time had their role to play in, uh, in the scene of the Rwanda genocide. In your own opinion, do you think that they had adequate structure in Rwanda to handle the genocide? Rwanda, that is one of the reasons for requesting the tribunal to be established. Rwanda says that we would like a more an impartial body, but uh, the country's systems have been badly disabled. Uh, the justice system just had no capacity to deal with the extent of workload that emerged out of the genocide. So that would run contrary to their intention to have a court domestically seated as well. Well, but I would not say it's contrary, but I, I still urge that concurrency of this relationship meant that, and this is, I think, one of the weaknesses that happened in creating the concurrent jurisdiction. They should have been um, pulled along with the same momentum. I think a lot more attention was paid to the international jurisdiction, and not much was uh, given in terms of attention to the national jurisdiction. But Rwanda did make, with the help of many friends, make her own efforts to, to, to move on. Did I see Hannah? Yes. Um, 
There could have been more done in the case of Rwanda. Suddenly, if we were at the kind of period that we are now with the framework for the ICT, probably the victims in Rwanda would have had more. Because when you look at the legal framework for the ICC, uh, there's much more attention in there for, for, for the benefit of victims. But as I said earlier, um, it's come a long way. There was some attention given to victims, including within the framework for dealing with the Rwanda genocide. So you will have, you say, varied opinions as to whether or not justice has been given to the victims. But as I say, probably there will be much more um, um, given to the Rwanda victims had we had an institution established with the knowledge we have today. So I hope with that, for the future, there might be more for, and I hope there will be no more victims of this kind of event. Yes? With the passing of Patsy and Hassan, yes. I think for a victim, justice is more than just the perpetrators have been identified right. and right. brought to trial. Right. I think justice requires more of a social, um, from a social aspect, logical right. scenario right. for to right. go past what has happened. Right. being brought to trial and they're, if they're convicted, they're, you know, they're housed in a court, in a jail system where they haven't reached their meals, the legal dinners, whatever, but the victims, at the end of the day, they're yeah, yeah. I agree, so but it's like I, I, I should say as well that um, a lot of effort has gone into addressing the situation of victims uh, in Rwanda. But let me say, if we look at Rwanda as a nation, as the victim, it's also true, and uh, I must commend that country for the effort it's put into emerging out of the horrors of that genocide. Um, Rwanda has made remarkable achievements ever since the genocide in, in moving herself forward. And that, that took a lot of effort from coming from different quarters. But when you look at it from, you may the social legal aspects of it, I think some more needs to be done, as I said earlier, to address aspects of genocide in, 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 uh, in a less legal but more social context. Do you think transitional justice help in that regard? Absolutely. In terms Absolutely. of forgiveness? And Absolutely. Absolutely. There was quite a bit of a debate in Rwanda whether um, there should be transition, transitional justice uh, institutions, framework. Rwanda was very firm and strong on Gachacha. So Gachacha as a suitable uh, option for transitional justice. How do you, uh, given the history, how do you, uh, how do you now assess the relationship between the three groups, ethnic groups within Rwanda, um, having looked back on uh, the past experience? They've done some work to address the inter-groups 
situation. Um, suddenly the government has very firm policy positions on it. As a matter of fact, references to ethnic groups um, is not allowed anymore. Uh, they are Rwandans and Rwandans and that's it. And uh, it becomes a very sensitive matter uh, referring to uh, uh, particular ethnic groups in that country. But in terms of a nation, um, it's also true that as, as the genocide came to an end, a big proportion of that country's population went into exile. There are quite a number of Rwandans who are out, outside the country. Uh, but I'm also aware that the government in that country has taken certain steps to try to deal with the impact of that and trying to restore harmony in, in her people. It may take quite a bit of time. They've come a long way, certainly. Come back to what I said earlier that I think there has been a rapid evolution um, and, and, and the perceptions about ICC are probably born out of out of that that some individuals have not some nations have not seen it the way it, it should be that I, ICC or for that matter ICC probably has not established a firm foundation for itself so that it's fully appreciated. Um, so until that gulf between what we saw as the ad hoc tribunals of primacy and the ICC that is kind of overriding and allowing national jurisdictions to um, take priority has been, has been addressed. Until that gulf has been addressed, I think we'll continue seeing it. One of the ways for it to be addressed is for national systems develop their own capacities. Now that could be like a chicken and an egg situation <coughs> because the same national system that we are talking about of criticizing the ICC, what I'm saying should develop the capacity to deal with uh, what otherwise the ICC should be addressing. Uh, that's, that's the tough situation that we have ourselves in the circle. Um, the regional bodies will probably have a role to play, and I think they need to be given momentum. The African Union, if you look at uh, the context of Africa, uh, the other regional blocs, I think should make a contribution in ensuring that that gulf is filled, that um, um, the national systems develop the capacity to deal with mass atrocities, gross violations of human rights, so that they can keep the ICC away, so that it's not the perception that ICC is going to target uh, particular regimes or individuals can be allayed. We've gone way over our time limit. 
right? Yeah, I realize it. I do actually have a question for you. Yes, though. sure, sure. Um, my question is, because you worked as an investigator, do you have a sense of where evidence gathering is done best in those four jurisdictions? Now, ranking them is not an easy thing, uh, simply because um, collecting evidence takes, takes, takes a village. And I'll talk about each of them in its own, or my, I'll make comments about each of them so that you'll understand that I think it's a combined effort, it's a combined process. And I'll start by talking about the tribunal. The tribunal by itself does not have a law enforcement capacity. The tribunal, and this is found in the provisions of the statute, relies on national systems uh, to do its work. So when it comes to collection of evidence, investigations and so on, much as the tribunal will have investigators with high level skill, will have personnel who have a deep understanding of the crimes they, they are investigating, um, if they do not have support from national law enforcement systems, uh, they won't go very far. Um, I know that the provisions of the statute allow the tribunal to, sub, to, to present the matter to the Security Council if a particular member state is not fulfilling the request of the tribunal, but that, that could become <coughs> bureaucratic. It does not answer the problem that we're talking about, that we need to collect evidence. For. So to that extent, because the tribunal was probably the first to address the crimes in a jurisprudential manner and to be able to identify the kind of evidence that is required for those crimes. We can say that it had that ability, probably over all others. And indeed, it has shared those lessons, that effort, that capacity with national systems. National systems have, and here I'm talking about Rwanda and other national jurisdictions as well, um, have the advantage of having their own law enforcement machinery, which they can use to generate uh, evidence, which they can use to conduct investigation. However, except probably for a few that have had a lot of work done in jurisprudential terms on international crimes, uh, they would face the challenge for which the International Tribunal has the expertise, having developed it. And, and so there you see that we cannot say one or the other. And, and similarly, um, uh, Gachacha, in, in 2002, I think they are about, when the Gachacha courts started in Rwanda, we had an amazing impact on the investigations we're carrying out. Amazing impact because once Gachacha uh, proceedings started, we had people coming out of the prisons who were providing um, astounding evidence. They were held responsible for committing the crimes, but they provided evidence that just gave a lead to the kind of investigations they were doing. So in that sense, uh, the gachacha process had its own contribution, had its own advantage that it had this body of people, the body of the participants in the process, who potentially had a huge amount of evidence, which, some of which 
we had not been able to access before the church was started. So I don't know whether that answers the question, yeah. but each of them, each of the four, had its advantages, which if they pulled along at the same page, and this is where concurrent jurisdiction, the concurrence of the operation needed to have been given those wheels right from the start, if they pulled along at the same time, I think probably would have dealt with this tribunal, uh, rather the genocide in the, the multi, a more efficient manner than we have witnessed. Yes. Just want to comment on that justice, uh, as some of us touched on it, uh, especially her, because uh, when it comes to getting justice in these kind of atrocities uh, in the genocide of the massacres, for the minorities, uh, the it becomes secondary to put the perpetrator in jail or uh, or in court. The primary concern is, in my opinion, is to get equal social status, equal social recognition at the highest level in the community. Uh, many of you may be familiar with the 1984 uh, genocide on Sikh, when the Sikhs in India were uh, uh, killed by the Hindu community, like 200,000 Sikhs were killed in, uh, in three days from uh, after the death of Indian Prime Minister, the main concern was not to put the people in jail, but to get social recognition in the community and the society. Because after when Indira Gandhi was killed, the Indian government passed a few laws that a Sikh can never become a Prime Minister or President, can never be the head of army, can never be a UN ambassador. But eventually, as you said, it will take time to those things and as after 27 years now, the Prime Minister of India, the, Sikh, the UN ambassador of India to the United Nations and MNC, and so talking about Hutsu and uh, the Tutsi, I think it will change. <coughs> Absolutely. I look forward to a time when the framework for dealing with issues of mass atrocity or gross violation of human rights consists of all the important components, not just the uh, legal juridical component corresponding to it. Uh, that, that also looks at whether it's through the whole legal juridical process, but more so probably more social process for addressing this kind of problems. But I agree with you entirely. It's not until those components uh, work together that uh, in a response to mass atrocity or gross violation Thank you, Samuel, for sharing all your knowledge with us today. And thank you for coming to visit us. We're very privileged to have had you talk to us today. And then we look forward to seeing you again at John Jay. Thank you very much. Thank you.